The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wagner, front and center this hour, the state of stocks, the economy, your money. Big questions today about all three. And the investment committee on the case for us today. Joining me for the hour, Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Capital Wealth Planning's Kevin Simpson. He's the CIO, and he is with us at Post 9. Let's check the markets. We got a lot of cross currents today. You see, we are red across the board. Joe, I got the VIX at a more than, what, three-year low. I got oil, the highest level. Uh, of the year this week. Um, yields are up today. There's Taiwan Semi News we're going to get to. The dollar index, ninth straight weekly gain. I mean, you put it all in and you mix it up. What do you, what do you take out? I think we were kind of overdue for this. Listen, in the month of September, we have not yet had a 1% move on any given day. We're sharply unchanged. So today, when you have Treasury yields, which are stubbornly high, near 16-year highs, in fact, when you see the price of oil go to $91.15, when you understand that today is not just a triple witching day, but a quadruple witching yeah, day. Yeah, the options expiration is going to be interesting and at the this, close. The statistics, uh, the statistics behind that, Scott, they're not good. If you go back to 1990, I think Bob gave this statistic. But you go back to 1990, the week following a September triple witching 79% of the time, the market's down. 1% on average is the loss. So bring it all together, you know, stir it up in the pot. Yeah. It doesn't make for a, a good near-term formation for the all, market. All, all that said, <laughs> Jenny Harrington, the major averages for, for September, you know, leading into September, we're like, oh, man, hi historically bad month for stocks. S&P's down 1% yep. in September. Dow's flat. Uh, S&P's only 3% from its 52-week high. So we talked yesterday about the resiliency of the market. Even Ken Griffin, who was interviewed yesterday, you know, was sort of surprised we've been able to get to uh, where we are, even in the face of all this other stuff. So what does it mean? Where do we go from here? Well, I think with respect to thinking like, oh, September's bad, as we've talked about with whole, the whole, like, is there going to be a recession? The more something's anticipated, the less likely it's going to actually be bad. I am firmly in the camp that I've been in for the last two years really now, which is we are range bound. And when I say range bound, I'm thinking of range bound at the S&P level. And that's something that you've pushed me on a lot, saying like, okay, but what about beneath the surface? What about the other 493 companies? So I think at the S&P level that we're range bound, but I think if you look beneath the surface, what we've had is we've had rolling recessions. And you know what the opposite of rolling recessions is? Rolling recoveries. And so there's, you use the word, Scott, cross currents. There are so many cross currents beneath that surface. And those cross currents create opportunity. So when you say, where do we go from here? 
I don't think you buy the market, but you can buy interesting things. And so in this tricky market that might be range bound, that might be kind of flat, I think you need to look for companies that have either unique growth characteristics that aren't dependent on the broader economy, that aren't dependent on, on um, the industry, but like mm -hmm. unique to themselves. So in our portfolio, in our growth portfolio, that would be like Cisco Systems and United Rentals, or things that have unique valuation distortions. Yeah, but I, so look, I, I look at your move, sorry to interrupt you, yeah, but yeah. You're, you're doing more trimming than buying, right? You trimmed Uber and XPO. Right, but uh, we're fully we invested. Yeah, I know, but you're looking for opportunities perhaps to take some off the table of big winners. Oh, for sure. Okay, fair enough. Rather than looking to buy the, the, the market, even though you you know, you know say you got to buy this, that, and the other thing, um, I see somebody who's trimming some winners. Okay, but so we trim two winners, right? And we trim them simply because they've grown to like large portfolio sizes and they've had really good returns and the valuations are a smidge stretch, but not enough to make us uncomfortable. And we took some of that cash and we repurposed it and added it to Ventos, which is a company that we added back in June. Ventos is a healthcare REIT. It's really undervalued. That one, that one actually falls into that category of unique growth prospects. So as people have returned to nurse, skilled nursing, nursing homes, retirement communities, they actually really have a tailwind of rental increases ahead of them. So we've taken, we've taken money off of, of stretched valuations, I'd say. And again, not a negative to the company, just portfolio management, and added it to where we know there's a unique growth, growth perspective. So Kevin Simpson, uh, speaking of moves, you bought, you're a buyer of some things. Uh, you bought more UPS, you bought more Walmart. You know, I wonder, I saw that sentiment number today, uh, which was a big miss, 67.7 versus 69.2 was the estimate. I'm wondering if we're, in some respects, at an inflection point for the consumer, and if that plays anything into your buying of more Walmart. I don't know that the inflection point's the reason for it. I think that's the thesis moving forward. If we get some economic slowdown, that the consumer benefits, Walmart benefits from the consumer dropping down. But I still think the bull narrative holds. You know, it might be holding by a string for most of the summer. And as we head into the fall, yet yeah, September, it's October, we get a little bit nervous. But the things that have held the market up so far, the assumptions that inflation's coming down, we're experiencing a soft landing, the Fed's done or close to being done, all those themes are still in place, but they become more precarious. And where I think the market might be getting it wrong, Scott, is I think we might be prematurely pricing in the rate cuts. I'm out of the camp that we're going to see them in the beginning of next year. I have a lot of reasons why, but I think we're probably looking a year out before we can really have that conversation. But I mean, the most interesting thing you, you just said to me was that the bull narrative holds. Yeah. You, you think the trend is still intact. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I just think that all of those things are still working, and until one of them isn't, then we're, then we're in trouble. So CPI was a little bit hotter, PPI was a little bit hotter, retail sales a little bit stronger, but nothing enough to move the Fed off the, off the narrative next week. Now, we'll look at the dot plots. That'll be fun if any of us care what they say. But what's, what's problematic is that November's still going to be on the table. And that presents a problem for the higher, for longer scenario to take place. Whether they raise rates or not in November, it just pushes the rate cuts back. But for now, nothing's broken. So oil up, yields up, dollar up, none of that is rises to the level to upset the, the narrative that you said is still intact? No, I mean, I'm always nervous and defensive. So for me, it really <laughs> you know, com comes from a different perspective. But looking at the overall macro, no, not yet. Jim Labenthal, how, yeah. how do you see this today? Well, With, uh, as I said, a lot of cross currents. Ken Griffin, by the way, also, as we played the sound for you yesterday, anxious that the rally can continue. Seventh or eighth inning is how he characterized it, at least in his own mind, about where he thinks we are. 
I think the rally continues, Scott, but you raised a great point to Kevin here about sentiment. Because in a larger scope, when you talk, well, when I talk to people, and I don't care if it's investors, fellow money managers, people on the street, there's this interesting paradox. People have jobs and wages are growing, but they feel lousy about the economy. And investors talk about the market a lot, and they say, wow, this is a lousy market, and yet, you know, the S&P is up, what, 16% year to date? Let's not even talk about the NASDAQ. So let's explain that paradox. And I think there's a very simple explanation for it, and Kevin, you're kind of hitting on it here, which is that we've been in an environment where good news is bad news because it incites the Fed to continue raising rates. I have been for quite some time saying, no, good news is good news. And there was good news today on industrial production. There was good news today on the Empire State Manufacturing Survey. When the Fed gets done with rate hikes, good news is going to be good news. Now, to your Opening point, Scott, there are cross-currents here, and oil's not good, and what's going on potentially with uh, the auto strike, I know we'll get to that later, but that could be inflationary as well. So these are things that may provoke the Fed to do more one rate, uh, one more rate hike, but I think they're pretty darn close to being done, and if they are, then good news becomes good news. By the way, speaking of the auto strike, we, uh, we may get some commentary out of D.C. as uh, well. We're watching... Uh, watching the White House, too, uh, for that as all of this unfolds, as we see how this is going to develop and play out uh, now that that strike is underway from the UAW. So all that said, I look at B of A, their flow show today, biggest weekly inflows since March 22 to equities. That's because the confidence in the soft landing is growing. Good. So people are putting more money in despite all of these issues that we say exist. Good. I like that. Let me say this. Um, People consistently will try and message in a lot of the Wall Street notes and even on the network, you know, you can eliminate risk, you could neutralize risk. I call BS on that. You cannot. All you can do is reshape risk in the market. So I'm going to make a statement to you. You haven't heard me say this in a long time. Okay. Next week, I'll buy the cues. I will take the risk on the cues. So for the people, you know, on social media that want to criticize me for that, you've never traded. So you don't even know what I'm talking about. You have to take risk You're in the market. You're getting a little defensive. The they haven't even started. They just mentioned it. They haven't the even, the critics haven't even popped you, out you know, yet. You know what's coming. The setup that I see is exactly what yeah. Kevin's talking about. The setup that I see is, yes, oil's rallying. We understand that. Yes, Treasury yields are stubborn. We understand that. But earnings and the recovery in earnings is going to happen. The revisions have been positive. And I believe if you get the seasonal weakness that I described off of triple witching last week, you have to take the high probability, low risk scenario to go long for a Q4 chase for performance. I'm with you. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. But that's what this game is so about. How do you respond? Taking to, how do you respond to somebody like Savita Subramanian over at Bank of America who talks about a tale of two markets today and says it's nearly impossible to be bullish on the market capitalization weighted uh, S&P 500 on valuation? She's talking about the very stocks right. that you're talking about buying. Mm-hmm. It trades expensive on 19 of 20 measures we track. So what do, we, what do you think about that? So from a long-term perspective, the strategy that I run is equal weighted. So I understand that. I am talking about a trade in the market. Yeah, I know, but the Qs are not equal weighted. <laughs> No, I understand that. We're but talking about the if, most okay, market-weighted so way to buy the market 100%, right now. percent but here's the trade. In Q4, if the market's going to rally, I'm not talking about owning something over the next 12 to 18 months, which is what Savita is speaking towards. Over the next 12 to 18 months, I think equal-weighted destroys market cap-weighted, and that's how I am positioned and invested. But for a trade, I think the leadership in 2023 has been in mega caps, has been in technology, and I think that's where the chase for performance is going to be in the fourth quarter. Could I be wrong? Yes, but I'm fine accepting that risk. 
All right, so obviously I'm in the camp that I don't think you're going to be right on that. In the I fourth quarter, I'm not going to be right on that. I don't think so. Okay, you want okay. to take the other side of it? Oh, totally. All right. Um, but, I mean, but it's interesting because the positioning of my You want to be short the cues in the fourth quarter against my long. I don't want to be long the cues. I don't want to be long that overexposure to the cues. And so I've had this quote stuck in my head all week by um, this, like, old philosopher Rousseau who says, the world of reality has limits. The world of imagination is boundless. And I think to think that those multiples can expand more, you're living in the world of imagination and not reality. Like the earnings growth of the top of the MAG7, the earnings growth doesn't match what the, what the valuations Jenny, you're are. you're 100% right. We're talking about two different things, and I said but that you're already. Talking I'm talking about a trade. Okay. I'm talking about the setup for a trade. I've already said you're 100% correct. In the long run. In the wrong okay. you're 100% correct. But I don't see how you get there. I don't see how you get there even for a trade. And I hear about the chasing, and we all know that emotions go too far, and maybe they will, but, but I don't see That's just a difference any... of opinion. You don't think there's going to okay. be a chase of performance. Okay. One other thing that I think is interesting, Joe, is when you're saying, I see this setup for earnings to rebound, for earnings to grow. I agree with that. But we need to like put magnitudes on all this. And so where are earnings right now? Earnings are still in the 220 range. If earnings grow, if they get to 240, which is a best case scenario, if you put an 18 to 20 times multiple on it, you still have limited upside. And so as we talk about all this like, oh, enthusiasm for a soft landing, let's remember what a soft landing is. A soft landing isn't great. A soft landing is disaster averted. And so I think that that, you know, that, that, the fact that earnings can't really grow that much, that valuations can't really expand that much, that people are misunderstanding the soft landing. I just think it sticks a really hard cap on the overall market, but I think it puts a bigger cap on the mag seven. You want to let, step into this food fight? Yeah, I mean, let me see if I can play mom here and uh, sort of calm you guys down, because you're That's both fun. right. You're both right. You're both right. Look, if there's a chase for performance, and there probably is, then money comes into the market, and simple, simple mathematics of market cap weighting means it's going to Apple, it's going to Microsoft, it's going to Amazon. Joe's going to be right. Now, you and I agree a heck of a lot more, and I think Kevin's with us too, mm-hmm. that where the value is in the market and where the higher returns are likely to come from is the rest of the market. The other 493, where the multiples aren't 18 times. You look at financials, you look at materials, you look at energies. We're not talking 18, 19 times. You look at industrials, yes, yeah, some of them are up there. But, but even but, you but, think in the fourth quarter, like between now and the end of the year, that if there I is think, a big rally out of the chase for performance, it's going to be in the those seven type names rather than the rest of the more economically sensitive no. and cyclical stocks. No. So let me be very just clear. Said he's going to right. I think he's going to make good money in the triple Q's buying them but next I make week. I have money somewhere else. Exactly. Okay. That's, That's where fair. I'm with Jenny. I, listen, let me, let me be very Because clear. the soft landing comes to fruition? Exactly. And you know what? I think you know this why? rally in the fourth quarter, let me just finish really sure. quickly. I think it's going to be, be a face ripper. I think it's going to be what? a face ripper. Yep. Come on. Kevin, help me out here. But where the revisions <laughs> the are. The economy's strong. If profits have bottomed and, and money starts coming in, I. I Look, this is historically what happens in a market where you're up big into the summer. September gets a little wobbly. It starts in late August. People want to go on vacation. Vacation. They take money out. And then fourth quarter comes along. You just watch. This is history. All right. Kevin Simpson. Jim and I are usually on the same page from a bullish thesis. I don't know about you. Don't, face, you don't face, see face, these face people ripping. all that often at the dinner table. You're, a, you're, 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 <laughs> you're an infrequent guest, so you could say whatever you want. So, look, if we're talking about 18 to 19 times forward earnings for next year, what does that give us? 5 to 10% upside for next year? I mean, that doesn't necessarily correlate to a strong rip-roaring up year. But if you're going to talk about window chasing and a trade, both institutional window dressing and retail investors are going to buy the cues because that's what they want. I heard that thought here. Let's go to the White House now. We're going to hear from the president regarding the auto strike. 
I'd like to say a few words about the contract negotiations between the United Auto Workers and the big three auto companies. You know, I've been in touch with both parties over since this began over the last few weeks and over the last the past decade. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including the last few years because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of the UAW workers. But those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers just as the Treasury Department has released a report pointing out that the most comprehensive report ever dealing with how unions are good for both union workers and non-union workers to and the overall economy. Unions raise workers' wages, they said, incomes, increase home ownership, increase retirement savings, increase access to critical benefits like sick leave and childcare, and reduce inequality, all of which strengthen our economy for all workers. That's because unions, unions raise standards across the workplaces and entire industries, pushing up wages and strengthening benefits for everyone. That's why strong unions are critical to a growing economy and growing from the middle out, the bottom up, not the top down. That's especially true as we transition to a clean energy future, which we're in the process of doing. I believe that transition should be fair and a win-win, excuse me, for auto workers and auto companies. But I also believe the contract agreement must lead to a vibrant, made-in-America future that promotes good, strong, middle-class jobs that workers can raise a family on. Where the UAW remains at the heart of our economy and where the big three companies continue to lead in innovation, excellence, quality, and leadership. Last night, after negotiations broke down, the UAW announced a targeted strike at a few big three auto plants. L let's be clear. No one wants a strike. Say it again. No one wants a strike. But I respect workers' right to use their options under the collective bargaining system. And I understand the workers' frustration. Over generations, auto workers sacrificed so much to keep the industry alive and strong, especially through the economic crisis and the pandemic. Workers deserve a fair share of the benefits they help create for an enterprise. I do appreciate that the parties have been working around the clock. I, and when I first called them at the very first day of the negotiations, I said, please stay at the table as long as you can to try to work this out. And the, they've been around the clock and the companies have made some significant offers. But I believe they should go further to ensure record corporate profits mean record contracts for the UAW. Let me say that again. Record corporate profits, which they have should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. And just as we're building an economy of the future, we need labor agreements for the future. It's my hope that the parties can return to the negotiation table to forge a win-win agreement to continue our active engagement. I'm, dis I'm dispatching two members of my team to Detroit, Acting Labor Secretary Julie Hsu and White House Senior Advisor Gene Sperling, both of them have been involved up to now to offer their full support for the parties in reaching a contract. The bottom line is that auto workers help create America's middle class. They deserve a contract that sustains them in the middle class. So thank you very much. That's all I'm going to say. Thank Mr. You. President, at what point would you get directly involved in the negotiations? Should Hunter get a pardon, Mr. President? 
All right, we'll take it back from the White House. You heard the president there. Uh, brief comments on the current strike, the UAW. Uh, the president saying that uh, auto companies are seeing record profits, as you heard there, but those profits, in his words, are not being shared fairly uh, with those workers. The president, perhaps not surprisingly, clearly taking the side in the union of, in all of this. And uh, at the end there, mentioned that two members of the administration will be heading to Detroit to uh, see where talks are heading from here and try to contribute uh, towards a resolution in the first full day of this strike by the UAW uh, against the big automakers. Jim Labenthal, I'll just go to you for a quick comment because uh, you're probably the most notable face uh, to the stock story on our show uh, as the a holder of General Motors. I respect the office of the president and I respect the president. I think that was a complete miss. Here's why. The offers on the table are for record profits and re record profits to be shared in compensation. Where the miss is, is that what the union is asking for is to go back to 20th century practice, particularly jobs banks, protecting jobs. Okay, electric vehicles, which the president also wants, requires fewer jobs to manufacture. You know where we need jobs? We need jobs in these new semiconductor plants that are going up all over the place. Don't keep jobs where they're not needed, i.e. jobs banks for auto work when we can redirect those workers to semiconductor plants, to EV battery plants, to solar panel plants. The, the idea of having record contracts, I'm on board with it. God bless these workers for what they're doing, seriously. But the idea of going back to pensions and protecting jobs, it's just, it, it's not where the future is. Why do you think these stocks are up today? Led by General Motors I, up 1.2%. You know, sometimes I say to you that I think the market's getting it wrong, and I hate to say this because I'm a GM owner. I think the market's getting it wrong today. I think this strike today is going to be uh, then increased over the next week or two when the, when the auto OEMs do what they have to do, which is say no to going back to pensions and jobs. I mean, unless you feel like the what is a bully pulpit of the presidency um, and President Biden speaking out uh, in favor of the union just puts more pressure uh, on the automakers to come to some kind of resolution in some sort of short order, uh, let's do Give any harm to raises. those companies' bottom lines and if the economy at large. Give them big raises. Give them big raises. They deserve it, okay? But going back to pensions and job banks, and what is this cutting the 40-hour work week, week to 32 <coughs> hours? I mean, does anyone here, does anyone watching the show actually work 40 hours? I work like 100 hours. <laughs> me too. Right? So there's no sympathy, none from me. Yeah. on that. So let, let's do this. Let, let's just move it forward. You, you mentioned, Jim, um, chips, chip plants, yep. onshoring of, of yep. things like that. I, I'm just, I want to hit the chips because they're, they're a significant story today. Um, there are several names uh, in the chip space, chip equipment names that are getting hit hard. We're, we're showing you a, a handful here among the day's biggest losers, uh, perhaps reacting to a Reuters report that Taiwan Semi has told major suppliers to delay high-end uh, chip-making equipment. Uh, because it reflects the company's caution over uh, demand. You guys uh, have an opinion here. Joe, um, Applied Materials, oh, chips. KLA 10 Core, LAM Research, those were the ones on the screen yep. right now, seeing losses of at least three, three plus percent. It's a reaction to the headline, the positive fundamentals, the positive technicals, and the overwhelming majority of chips, specifically ones that you're citing there on the screen. Um, in addition to that, you could throw uh, AMD into that on semi, synopsis, synopsis, all of them. I still think the positive trend is in place, and I would be a buyer of the weakness. Two chip names that we do own that unfortunately are not performing well, Texas Instruments, Microchip seems to have lost a little bit of the bullish momentum that it had. Those would be the two chip names that I'm concerned with. But overall, this is just nothing more than a reaction to headlines. Positive trends still in place. Wolf thinks the same, by the way. They initiate outperform today. AMAT, KLAC, and, and uh, LAM Research. 
Uh, AMAT, favorite name in the semi-capital equipment space, that's what they say. KLA, most exposure to foundry. And in terms of LAM, most exposure uh, to memory. So you get a positive note uh, there about a space that's falling. You want to give me something quick on Adobe, too, which is our chart of the day uh, as their EPS and revenue beat. But the stocks is selling off. Last I saw was a four plus percent. Let's take a look at this moment. Well, we talked about it at the end of closing bell yesterday. The expectations for earnings were high. We knew Firefly was finally going to be a contributor. Web traffic had been strong. I'm not surprised, but this digital media was still strong. I think where is the street disappointed? They're disappointed in the conservative guidance. But what did you expect? This is the type of environment where you're going to get conservative guidance. So I, I don't think there's very much that you need to do here. If you already are long the name, you understand it's trading lower off the high expectations. Um, and I would sit tight with it. And on further weakness, if you don't own it, I'd look to be a buyer. All right, let's uh, let's bounce for a couple. We'll take a quick break. Up next, a bullish call on one big industrial stock today, uh, saying it could jump 18% from here. We have ownership on the desk. We'll do it next in our call of the day. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. our calls of the day now. First up, Deer, initiated by HSBC. Uh, Kevin, you own that. They go to price target 486. That's 18% from here. They see, quote, upside in the cycle. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. I see it. The stock's still down 6% this year, Scott, but tons of free cash flow. If you look at the forward multiple of 11 versus Caterpillar at 17, I think it's a better value. Incredible dividend, strong dividend growth, and just a cash flow machine. Farmer Jim on deer. I mean, that would be a travesty <laughs> if he didn't weigh in on that, right? I love deer. Love deer. <laughs> Thank God. You know, the, deer. obviously, <laughs> the rub against deer has been for the past several months <laughs> that they're at peak earnings and that they're not going to see growth from now. Before I dispute that, which I will, I will simply say that those peak earnings keep raising with each quarter. They keep beating, the estimates go up, and I think that's going to continue. And I think the growth is there because we need to replant and reorient the geography around the world with what's happened in Central Europe and the war there, there's going to be replanting. You're going to need equipment all over the world for that. Joey, you got it in the Joe T. I do, and a little disappointed. It's down 6% year to date. There's also the, the thesis, and if you look right now at the, um, the auction market on used farm equipment, it's down for six consecutive months in August. It was basically flat. So if you think about the transaction where someone is purchasing new equipment, well, what are they doing? They're trading in the old equipment, and now they're getting a lower price point on that. So that is a risk to the overall new equipment market. Uh, Corn and wheat have not cooperated as well. (laughs) Most other commodities have. Corn and wheat are down nearly 20%. So I think that's one of the reasons for the disappointment and struggles in the name. You're not in the tractor, new tractor market? Not at the moment, but, uh, you know, can I just address something you said? Yeah. There's a negative vibe on deer, and there has been all year. 
But, you know, really, if you look at the one, three, five-year track record of deer, it's been really quite good. Yes. And it's coming back from earlier this year when it kind of stunk up the joint. I, I think this negative vibe is unwarranted, and I think it's coming out of that. So I, I don't think we're going to be talking like that for very long about deer. Hey, Kev, how about Visa and MasterCard? Visa, both of those stocks, by the way, reiterated overweight uh, today at Wells Fargo. Visa's revenue guidance, they say, is the key catalyst for the stock in which you own. Yeah, I mean, Visa's P.E. is 30, still a little bit high. MasterCard's 39. There was some some issues with the class shares yesterday that caused the stock to come down. I think that was a little bit overblown. I'm not sure that there's really the same dilution that we were hearing about yesterday. Transactions are up. And the nice thing about Visa is they're not exposed to default risk. I mean, they're a transaction, a fintech company. They get paid on, on business that's going through and cycling through the cards, not on where interest rates are, and they're not exposed to the default, which could happen because, well, heck, there's a trillion dollars worth of credit card debt now, and interest rates are pretty darn high. Joe, you have both I in do. a T, Visa and Master. <laughs> the best thing about them is that they're in the financial sector, so you have an alternative to a lot of the money sent to banks that have been somewhat disappointing. Um, I agree with all the, the points that Kevin's making. There's a little bit of the Walmart effect to it as well, where it's, it's viewed as defensive in an economy that might be contracting. Jimmy, Visa is yours. Just a, it's just a stalwart stock. It keeps going higher and higher. And, you know, earlier in the year it was doing fine because inflation meant that, that uh, transactions were going up. Now inflation's coming down, but wages are going up. So you've got real income growth, which, again, will support transactions in the aggregate. Uh, as long as you're not negative on the economy, these are two stocks to be in. Yeah, so we own, we own American Express, and it kind of goes back to your cross-currents comment, which is we see some, some areas of consumer being you know, pressured and weak. Some are hanging in there. Amex has exposure to a higher-end consumer businesses. We think that as, you know, as there's economic pressure, Amex insulates it really well. You Looking, can see that in their charge-offs. Yeah, you can. I mean, it's up, uh, well, shy of the market, mm -hmm. uh, up about 11%. Um, percent. So we'll keep our eye on uh, both Visa and MasterCard, just let me update you real quick. We're approaching the bottom of the hour. The Dow is uh, still down by about 200 points. A few moments ago, you heard from the current president. Now we're getting uh, more on the UAW strike from the former president, Donald Trump, weighing in during an exclusive interview airing this Sunday on Meet the Press with Kristen Welker. Take a listen. Let's talk about the economy. And I want to start by talking about this big standoff between the auto workers and the big three auto manufacturers. Yeah. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. Uh, the auto workers uh, are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it, because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any, I'll tell you what, the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership, and their leadership should endorse Trump. The reason is, you got to have choice. Like in school, I want school choice. I also want choice for cars. If somebody wants gasoline, if somebody wants all electric, they can do whatever they want. But they're destroying the consumer and they're destroying the auto workers. The auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because the, all of these cars are going to be made in China. The electric cars automatically are going to be made in China. So let's talk about UAW's leadership. The president, Sean Fain, has withheld his endorsement of President Biden. But this is what he had to say about you. Quote, another Donald Trump presidency would be a disaster. How would you win that endorsement? Well, if that's the case, I probably won't win his. And I don't know the gentleman, but I know his name very well. And I think he's not doing a good job in representing his union because he's not going to have a union in three years from now. 
those jobs are all going to be gone because all of those electric cars are going to be made in China. And you'll be sure to watch more of this exclusive interview with former President Trump on Meet the Press with Kristen Welker. That is this Sunday on NBC. Uh, and we wish our colleague well uh, as she takes the reins of that program. Uh, all right. Uh, straight ahead. We'll hit the energy trade as crude tracks for its third weekly gain. How the committee is positioned. We'll do it next. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. Oil pushing higher again today after touching fresh highs for the year. You can see it's just shy of 91 now. It was over that level a little bit earlier in the session. We've called in Bryn Talkington to join us now as we discuss this uh, because you're one of our experts on this topic, Bryn. And you do have uh, among the most exposure in the space among uh, many of the committee members, uh, Blackstone Minerals, Devon, Energy Transfer, Diamondback, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we see here forward with oil on the move? Well, let's start with the technicals, because if you look at from November of last year of 2022 to, you know, prior to two months ago, 87 for oil had been really strong resistance. Well, we've really blown through that. And so now from a just basic technical analysis, that resistance now becomes support. So I think from a, a positioning sentiment and from a trader perspective, I think that's very, very bullish for, for oil as the commodity and therefore the derivative of the underlying companies. I think also, you know, we haven't seen these OPEC cuts that really are Saudi driven. Outside of a recession, we haven't seen these type of cuts in over 20 years. And so you have this mismatch between strong demand and we're seeing, you know, China, although they're incredibly weak from a growth perspective, you have not seen that push through in weakness in oil. And so you've got, you know, China's still strong from oil demand. We have inventories are incredibly low. The administration should have filled that SPR when they could, and demand is picking up. So I think those ingredients have pushed us up above that 87, and so I think it's you know, very bullish for those underlying companies, which have really mm -hmm. underperformed the broad market year to date. It, it is interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, because traditionally, you know, strong dollar, weaker commodities, weaker oil, um, not the case uh, this time around. Well, I think you also have to think, you know, going back to the great financial crisis, you know, OPEC, I really think was caught, especially Saudi, um, wrong footed and they cut too late. And so I think that as, you know, Jenny was talking about earlier, you know, as, as well as you, these cross currents globally of that, what's happening in the economy 
going forward globally, I think it's just very much of a mixed bag. And so Saudi, Saudi and OPEC want to get in front of that and not be wrong footed. But what's happening is you're actually seeing this energy demand continue to pick up. I mean, the estimates are that we're going to have, I want to say, 104 million barrels per day next year um, is the estimates, which is 2.2 million from year over year. So it's like I get this whole transition to green, yada, yada, yada is happening. <laughs> it's not going to be happening for like 20 plus years. And so I still think these companies, which I've talked about a bunch, if you want to buy the companies that have the best free cash flow yield, not just free cash flow, but free cash flow divided by their enterprise value, free cash flow yield, you're getting like 11 plus percent across mm -hmm. the sector. So I think it's a very cheap space that most people are still very under allocated to, whether it's in the public or you know private markets. Our guy Kevin Simpson over here bought more SLB. Yeah, yeah. Tell and our viewers why. And ConocoPhillips, for all the reasons that Bryn just said, we're talking about cash on cash, companies that have cleaned up their balance sheets. They're not wasting money on CapEx. They care about shareholder value. Over $80 a barrel, it's great. Over $90 a barrel, it's really exciting. And when you look at SLB, we're not going to be building new rigs. Jim, you talk about them all the time. But when we dust off old ones, it's a gold mine for SLB. So we're looking for companies that have incredible dividend growth, credible respect for shareholders. They're buying back stock, and they're fiscally responsible. To Bryn's point, maybe we're not going to own them forever, but they're certainly a nice runway. Big in this space, too, you are. I am, and I'm not changing my, my position. Um, but let's have a risk disclaimer for the viewers. There's frustration today, and there's been frustration for the entire quarter. What am I talking about? Spot price of oil is up 28% this quarter. Energy, XLE, is only up 13%. If you're listening to us right now and you see the price of oil went to 91.15, you're looking at your energy stocks and you're saying, what's going on? Because only Suncor and Jimmy's rig are higher today. All other energy stocks are down. Why so is that? it's just sometimes the correlation, and I think we're going through that period between the spot price of oil and energy equities breakdown. That is the, uh, the nuanced dynamic, if you would, surrounding trading commodities and energy equities themselves. And it's been in place for the entire quarter. That doesn't mean you move away from your energy exposure, because I agree with Bryn, I agree with you, Kevin. I think it's the right place to be, but you have to set the expectation. The expectation right now is you might not capture everything you're seeing on the screen with the spot price of oil. Jenny? Well, if you think about it too, the energy market, the energy sector was up 60% last year. So the reason it's dislocated a little bit this year is because it pulled it forward. So to Joe's point, like you really need to set your expectations. I think there's a lot of upside ahead, but they may not move in tandem because we had two years of pulling it forward. One thing that I think is interesting when Bryn's talking about Saudi and restraint and, and Kevin's talking about old rigs, what I think is really cool, what we've seen in the last three years is real discipline come in here. And I think back to, remember in the pandemic when oil prices actually went negative? I think that was a huge awakening for Saudi. They got in that like face slapping contest with Russia. Prices actually went negative. And ever since then, and ever since U.S. producers were capital starved because they were so crazy, disciplines come in. And I think we can ride those coattails for a long time. So to Joe's point, there's not crazy upside, but there's still upside ahead. And you have a ration, an industry behaving rationally where they didn't in the past. you got to be quick. I'm going to do this to my buddy Joe again. I think the negativity, I think we're coming out of it. I think the negativity is overblown. Look at ExxonMobil. It's about 1% about off of its all-time high. Look at the XLE. It's about 2% off of its all-time high. It's been a crummy year, except for the last two months. We're coming out of it. It's going to continue. Bryn, thank you. 
Sorry, what did you say? Sorry, I was just going to say it's still about magnitude. The negativity may be done, but there's not the upside that we've seen. So manage your expectations. I'm going to be a good listener and let you Sorry, break. sorry. Thank you. <laughs> sorry. It's nice when that happens. <laughs> Bryn, thank you. Enjoy the weekend. We'll see you soon. That's Bryn Talkington joining us on the Energy Trade. Up next, the energy, the earnings set up, I should say, for the week ahead. Kevin's making a move in one name reporting. We'll tell you what that is, and we'll do that next. Welcome back. We're looking ahead to next week. Got some key companies reporting their earnings up. Jumping out to me, guys, uh, KB, on Wednesday, because let's look at Lennar. Let's look at DR Horton. Let's look at Pulte today. When I was looking at discretionary stocks, they were, at least right before our program, among the three worst performers in the entire index. So, Joe, you own, you own Lennar and DR. So what does that say about what KB might have to say next week and what the stock may do as a result? The, these stocks are all in a tenuous technical position, in particular for DR Horton and Lennar. It really is at a critical 200-day moving average. Um, I, I, I think that you can make the argument that we've seen the peak in the earnings cycle for the home builders. I think that's fair. I think it extended way beyond what we uh, we understood that it could going into the spring of 2023. But I think in the spring of 2023, that was really the strongest moment for these home build, builder stocks. And I think they're moderating a lot of the gains that they've been. I think there's been an overwhelming surprise about the outperformance. And I think now you have to lower your expectations. And we're at this critical technical point. Let's see what we do with it. We got General Mills, by the way, on Wednesday. Um, Kevin, you trimmed that stock. Yeah, I, I like the name. We still have a one and a half percent position, but the price action has been horrible. It still has one of the better multiples in the space. We own Procter & Gamble. When I listened to that earnings call, and they did beat on top and bottom line, but there was some concern moving forward, and I'm fearful that we may see something similar with General Mills. Darden on Thursday, Joe. You got that in the T. Yeah, that's been falling back as well. Uh, there's been challenges as it relates to uh, chicken prices. There's been challenges as it relates to dairy prices. Uh, the comps have softened up. That's why the stock has been weak. It really needs a very strong earnings report here to kind of reverse what has been in the near term um, some weakness in terms of the fundamental expectations. Right, we'll step away. Uh, we'll take another quick break. We'll come back. Mike Santoli, he's going to join us with his midday word. We'll do that in two minutes. Dow's down about 182. All right, welcome back. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now with his midday word. What's on your mind uh, on this Friday? Well, you know, Scott, we got a little bit of a, of a sense that we might even get a 1% move in the S&P 500 today. It's been quite a while since we have had one of those. Uh, not quite yet. I think, the, to me, the, the puzzle going into the second half of, uh, of September is, you know, why we've been able to sidestep anything worse uh, than we, you know, were maybe led to expect during, during the stormy time of the season. Uh, it seems as if, to me, uh, that we have the orderly decline in inflation happening faster than, you know, earnings estimates uh, or the economic uh, picture in general are eroding. I think the big question is that we kind of almost internalized the calm too much. Very, very low volatility demonstrated by this market in the past couple of weeks. Also the case, expected volatility has gone toward uh, the lows. And, uh, you know, some people are going to see that as a direct contrarian uh, signal. Others, 
that it's a return to normal. Uh, so I do think that, you know, we're going to get tested by where gas prices are, where, uh, where yields are right now. But so far, nominal GDP growth isn't giving you a reason to worry. And the Fed, I keep saying, is not really uh, the swing factor in this market. Hasn't been for most of this year. So maybe that's a comfort going into next Wednesday. Yeah, oil up, yields up, dollar up, VIX down. You nailed it but up in a very measured way, at least in the last couple of days. So at some point, you know, there's a, there's a pain threshold there. We're still looking for it. All right. We'll see you in a bit. I'll see you on Closing Bell. That's yeah. Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. Coming up, we'll check in on another stock that's under pressure today. It's also down 30% this year. Jenny owns it. Her take is next. All right, Charles Schwab, we mentioned it because there's the stock today down near 4%, reporting a big drop in client inflows last month. Net new assets falling 64% from July, 89% from last August. Um, What do we think? Jenny Harrington, you own... SCH dubs. We do. And we own it because it's down so much. We actually added it in March back um, back in March at about $54 a share. So we're still we're still happy with this investment. When I read when I read the headline this morning that said Schwab slides because of these numbers, I thought of that Warren Buffett quote that says money, the market's a mechanism for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. And I thought the market's a mechanism for transferring money from the lazy who don't read past the headline to those who actually do work. Because if you read below this headline, what you've learned is that a lot of these numbers are actually because of attrition from the TD Ameritrade deal. Well, that's what Schwab says. Yeah, and I think that's real. And then you look beyond beyond that, too, and there's actually more positive numbers coming out behind it, which is also saying the cash sorting slowing down, margin margin numbers are encouraging, margin balances. I'm sorry, I meant to say, um, yeah, margins encouraging, margin balances are up. So I think the business is actually in really, really, really good shape. I have no issue with our ownership, and I think when, when someone's dumb enough to sell off 4% and sell their shares 4% lower on this headline like you take that free money and buy it here i mean but the stock as you mentioned is down 31 percent year to date so all the sellers are dumb no on today's news trading down four percent on today's news is dumb when we bought it back in march and it already traded down on this like those are for kind of reasonable reasons right they make their money and don't forget it traded down in the aftermath of svb when when People kind of woke up and realized, oh, gee, you know, my money's sitting in cash and earning zero. And actually, if I put it in a money market fund, I can get five and a half percent. Isn't that still a thing? Yeah, but it slowed down tremendously. And so there was that first tranche of all that movement, which was negative to Schwab. Shares traded down. It adjusted for that. Meanwhile, they're actually bringing in assets handover. They brought in assets, sorry, handover fist in the aftermath of SVB as money fled out of smaller players and into Schwab. So they had really good momentum and new asset flows. This is just, I think, I read this as just a sorting out of the TD closure, not something bigger. I think you have an opportunity to invest in an amazing company here. And what we're seeing, again, in the aftermath of SVB is the bigger getting bigger. You know, the better technology, the better operators, the better websites, they deserve to have more custodial assets. As the market stabilizes and improves, they actually make more money. All right. We, uh, we'll step away. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Oh, we'll wrap up the week today on Closing Bell, 3 o'clock Eastern time. See what the stocks do here. Uh, into the close over that final hour with Cameron Dawson. Edgar Denny is going to join us, too. Can't wait for that conversation. Stephanie Link, Dom Rizzo, he manages T. Rose Tech Fund. Lots to talk to him about. Bit of stabilization in the NASDAQ. I mean, it was up a smidge on the week uh, earlier, but you still do have some question marks about Apple and some of the other names uh, within there. So I'll see all of you 
in a couple hours. Let's do final trades, though. Kevin Simpson. Uh, UPS, a stock that's grossly oversold, plays over a 4% dividend, trades at a 16 multiple, and they've been growing that dividend at 13% per year for the past five years. All right. The good farmer. <laughs> Oracle. You're going to harvest some gains from Oracle. You've got a price break that was well overdone on earnings this week. Here's your entry point. Okay. Jenny? Okay, Seagate, memory company, super cyclical. You want to bottom it, buy it at the bottom of the cycles. Last week they said that earnings are going to be in the low end of the range, 4.5% dividend yield while you wait. What's Fleet Corps? Fleet Corps is a financial stock. Trades <laughs> 21 <laughs> times, 52-week yeah. high today, and it's not the last one. You own it? Yep. All right. Dow's down about 188. Uh, Joe's a man of many words on that. <laughs> Do your research, folks. The exchange is down. <laughs> You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available.